Once again, it is good to be back. I haven't been sick for so long. I was supposed to preach on this topic two weeks ago, but I was out sick for two weeks. I was actually thinking I'd come back uh, this past Sunday and be here, but uh, uh, when I went into the office, Mike heard me coughing and texted from the relative safety of his own office that I should keep my germs at home, which is probably wise. So it is uh, interesting, though, that in the providence of God, uh, it's Fourth of July weekend when I finally am able to preach on today's topic. Uh, if you've been with us, you might be aware we've been going through a topical sermon series Uh, Taking a break from working through the book of Luke, uh, we are talking about various false gospels, the fake good news uh, sermon series. And today brings us, at long last, to uh, what we're calling the activist gospel, or maybe activist gospels plural, which I'll explain later, unless I accidentally edited out the part of my notes where I explain that later. We'll figure that out as we go, but... um, First, I want to distinguish uh, between activism and an activist gospel, because they're not the same thing. In much the same way, there's difference between prosperity and a prosperity gospel, or between uh, morality and a moralist gospel. We're not against prosperity. We're not against morality, for sure, right? Uh, But we are against making those things into idols or into gospels, which is essentially the same thing. Uh, In the same way, uh, many of us probably aren't against activism itself, though we might be against certain activists' causes or or methods, but we are against making activism into a gospel. So our country has a long history of activism. It's part of the American experience, right? You go back to the Sons of Liberty engaging in multiple acts of protest in response to taxation without representation. You get the Boston Tea Party being the most famous of those. Um, most, many protests were relatively peaceful. Some did get out of hand, the occasional uh, burning of a tax official's office or a number of tar and featherings. Uh, but their goal was to rally people to the cause that eventually became the American Revolution. So activism was at least part of the process in bringing about the civil freedoms that we celebrate tomorrow. And activism has certainly been part of our uh, national culture ever since. It's brought about good things. I think of women's suffrage movement or civil rights movement. There are a number of activist uh, organizations at work today, uh, some of which we might agree at least with their cause, some of which we might not, some of which uh, we might have mixed feelings about. Uh, Some uh, are peaceful and some are are not. You know, there's Antifa and the alt-right, there's pride marches and proud boys, Black Lives Matter and Back the Blue, the Women's March and the March for Life. And by the way, I'm organizing those by plays on words, not making any statement of moral equivalence between any of those. What I want to point out is that for any issue that we are faced with, whether it's racism or sexuality or the environment or gun violence, there's an activist organization trying to address it. Activism has become just how Americans do things, how we try to get things done. Activism even has some connection to evangelicalism. Uh, The most cited definition of what the evangelical movement is all about is something called the Bebbington Quadrilateral. Have you heard of the Bebbington Quadrilateral? Just 
It sounded funny when I said it just now. I've never said it out loud before. It's a really funny word. But anyway, David Bebbington is this uh, historian who traces the evangelical movement back to like 1730 uh, and says it's characterized by four things. There's biblicism, so we want to base everything on scripture. Crucicentrism, meaning the cross is central uh, to who we are. Conversionism, you must be born again. And then his fourth point is activism. Certainly activism in, in mission, but, but not, not exclusively, uh, not limited to that. We want to make a difference in the world around us. So there is a history of Christians wanting to make a difference. Historically, you might think of how many hospitals or orphanage uh, were founded by Christians. Today, and I want to acknowledge there is some disagreement among Christians. Uh, you might have a range of views among Bible-believing, theologically orthodox Christians when it comes to activism, getting involved. You do have some who say they would refrain from any kind of activism. They wouldn't even go to the, the March for Life or a prayer march. They'd rather spend that time preaching the gospel. Uh, others will say it's because of the gospel that they want to advocate for certain things. If the love of Christ abides in me, uh, how can I not do what I can when, for example, so many unborn lives are at stake? Uh, this is how they would flesh out the command to love their neighbor. I do have thoughts on this, but I won't share them today because I don't want to distract us from the main point. I should also note that I'm using a pretty broad definition of activism here. Uh, maybe an activist mindset is a better word. I'll leave it to sociologists to haggle over what counts as, as activism and when it's become something else, you know, rallies and protests and marches and lobbying, writing letters to congressmen, uh, posting and reposting things on social media. There are a lot of things that qualify as something that you're doing because you want it to, to make a difference. And to some degree, it's a little bit like the sports ball. Uh, I'm going to do a sports ball analogy, which you've heard before. You know, most of you have your favorite sports ball squadrons, right? Uh, around here, uh, many of you uh, identify with the red-feathered songbirds of St. Louis, or uh, even, uh, for some reason, the young carnivorous mammals in Chicago. Uh, I haven't met as many fans around here, for some reason, of the bleached hosiery up in Chicago, but um, give you a couple seconds to figure that one out. But <laughs> as has been pointed out in, in sermons before, you know, when your favored squadron achieves a victory in the sports ball arena, right, when your team wins, uh, you say, we won, even though you weren't actually on the field doing the work. And, and I think some people, there's, there's a spectator activist mindset. You know, you support different activist groups uh, the same way. We're not actually participating in it, but we do support this or that group, and their views and mindsets start to affect us. And, um, and, and what I'm calling the activist gospel can still affect us, even if we're not out there. Uh, doing the activisms, whatever they, they're defined as. So if that's the definition of activism, <laughs> or lack of one, uh, then what is an activist gospel? Well, like any false gospel that revolves around action that you take, it's just another kind of moralism, right? Um, it's a gospel of human effort. You'll be saved by activists achieving the cause. The world must be saved by activism achieving a certain cause. You have value if you're serving that cause. You are damned if you're working against the cause or remaining neutral or not doing enough for the cause or doing it the wrong way for the cause. 
It's all about the cause, all about the work that we are trying to do here. And that's moralism. And when our ultimate hope, our ultimate purpose, ultimate value for ourselves, for others, for the world, when that lies in the works that we do rather than the work that God has done, uh, then that's moralism. So the text we're going to look at this week is the same text I used several weeks ago when I preached more generally on the false gospel of moralism. The text Trey read for us, uh, Galatians 5, 1 through 15. Actually, if you uh, want to grab a Bible near you, I would encourage you uh, to open that up and find it. I think it's like on page 974. I'm going to skip around in there, and I think it'll just help you to have it, have it open. Um, so, and in fact, uh, my plan this morning is to simply work through the same points I made about moralism then. I'll kind of briefly review each one, and then look at how that applies to uh, what I'm calling an activist gospel. So the first point that I made about moralism was in verse 8 of Galatians 5, where Paul says, this persuasion, meaning the legalism, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. So the legalism of these Galatian false teachers, uh, that that's why he's writing this letter to, to uh, condemn the false teaching and encourage them to go back to the real gospel. Uh, it's, it's another kind of moralism, and it's not from him who calls you. It's not from God. Who is it from? Nobody you want to associate with. I can tell you that much. Uh, the key to an activist gospel is that even though you haven't admitted it to yourself, maybe, uh, the cause is not just a good thing that you are doing, it is the good, the standard of goodness, meaning it has functionally become your God. So a question to ask yourself if there is something that you're passionate about, am I passionate about this cause because of who God is? Is my engagement with the world shaped by who God is, or is my concept of God redefined to whatever best fits the cause. Yeah, take just as an example the March for Life. Yeah, do, do I honor and worship God? Therefore, I'm passionate about the value of people made in the image of God. Therefore, I want to protect unborn life in the image of God. But when it stops being about love for God and love for neighbor and starts being about you know, making a good show for your friends or winning or destroying the opposition, you're starting down a dark path. And let's look at where that path leads. So the second point, by the way, there are lots of points here. There were like eight points or something, I don't know. Uh, but I'm not going to spend too much time on each one of them. But the, the second point, one verse earlier, in verse 7, uh, Paul asked the Galatians, who hindered you from obeying the truth? And moralism, as I said, is disobedient, disobeys the truth, disobeys the gospel. Certainly the same is true of an activist gospel. Even if you are advocating for a worthy cause, if that cause becomes your gospel, your means of salvation, then it becomes disobedience. As an activist gospel progresses, it also becomes disobedient to the truth. In fact, truth becomes redefined as whatever supports the cause. Uh, when we use the term activist, sometimes in a negative sense, this is often what we have in mind. Think of you know, people talk about activist judges. 
as someone who isn't looking at the facts, isn't looking at what's right or fair or true. They just have an agenda, and they're making a decision based on what best fits the agenda. But it's not just you know, judges. Uh, you and I can be drawn into this. It's a kind of confirmation bias, right? People uh, believe whatever they want to believe. Uh, we believe whatever supports what we're passionate about uh, because that cause has become our standard of truth. So people buy into all manner of you know, fake news, conspiracy theories, unfounded accusations, not because they're convinced by reason or evidence, but because it adds fuel to the fire of their passion. Uh, we tend to believe what makes us the most angry about those people. Uh, sometimes people even start reading the Bible in, in funny ways. Uh, the New Jerusalem in Revelation has a wall around it, so that proves we should build a border wall. Or the Bible says give to the poor, so that proves we should become a socialist state. You know, Both of those arguments are insane abuses of Scripture, but people buy into them. Why? Because they've started reading the Bible through the lens of whatever cause or issue or policy they're in favor of. So the Bible, too, begins to serve the cause, obviously dishonoring to both Scripture and its author. Third point uh, about moralism is found in verse 3. Every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law, in essence. So the Galatians apparently thought they could just accept this physical uh, right of circumcision, and they'd be good to go. Uh, ironically, legalism becomes, as I said, antinomianism, meaning that legalism actually devalues the law. It says we don't have to keep it. In essence, it has to. You know, no one's going to be try. No one's going to attempt to save themselves by law keeping if they're aware that they can't actually keep the law. Right. So you have to lower the law to something that you can keep or think you can keep. You know, I can't love my neighbor as myself. I can't love God with my whole heart and soul and mind. But circumcision, we can check that off the box, right? And activist gospels, if you think about what our world is like, uh, they definitely work this way. If you're on our side, if you're working for the cause with all your heart and soul and strength, then you're good to go. In many cases, uh, people just don't care about someone's character as long as they're on their side. The end comes to justify the means. The cause is all that matters. Just as the cause became our standard of truth, it's now our standard of righteousness. It can't be bad if it furthers the cause. It can't be good if it hinders and slows the cause. Because good is whatever furthers the cause. Bad is whatever hinders the cause. And of course, this is where activism can start to slide into violence. That's why we see it happen. A peaceful protest turns into a riot. It might be in the name of a righteous cause, but it's no longer righteous action. And that starts at the heart level. It is one thing, as I've said, if your love of God, love of his compassion, love of his righteousness, if that moves you to do something about what's going on around you, it's something else entirely if you start to think that you are righteous because of what you're doing or what you support. You're then obligated to keep the whole law. And chances are, by that point, you're already lowering certain standards. You're already lowering the bar on certain biblical truths and principles like love your enemies. So far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Let every person be quick 
to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, social media and news media, they make money by making people quick to anger. And this isn't new, this has been going on for decades, but when you're angry, you spend more time tuning in, logging on, scrolling through, and they sell more ads. And I'm not saying that there's out there worth being angry about. It says slow to anger, not no to anger. Paul was pretty angry about the legalism in Galatia, right? But you can't drink in angry rants from outraged people for hours a day and expect to be filled with the peace that passeth all understanding. The anger that they're stoking in you will not produce the righteousness of God. I realized this one day at some point that I had been logging on there looking for the next thing to be angry about. That's not the way. Just past today's text in Galatians 5.19, spend a little bit more time on this point, but Paul lists the works of the flesh, which are opposed to the works of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. And among these works, just to pick a few out of the list, are enmity, strife, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. There are pundits and, and politicians that absolutely thrive by stirring up those same things in their audience or in their voting base. But Paul says, I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What a warning. We need to be careful. And I'm not saying you have to delete Facebook or stop watching news stations. I'm not saying you need to make sure you're reading the Bible two hours for every one hour you spend on Twitter, although, you know, wouldn't be opposed to that either, but uh, just be honest about who's influencing you and, and what effect it's having on you. Fourth point I made about moralism is that uh, basically it doesn't even work. And for that one, I actually kind of skipped over to the book of Colossians, Colossians 2.23. Paul talks about certain regulations, which he says have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but there are no value. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So he's saying extra man-made rules don't make you extra godly. They don't actually help you sin any less. Uh, we've already seen, from what I've said, how this can be true of an activist gospel, right? When the standard of godliness shifts from God to this or that cause, you're bound to wander into ungodliness sooner or later. And again, I would argue that activism itself can and has made improvements uh, to our culture, though activism can and probably has made things worse. But an activist gospel sooner or later will definitely make things worse. It does this by making people worse. Um, think of a denomination I was once a part of where decades ago they worked to make some good changes, but to pull it off, they partnered with some belligerent people, and now they're paying a price for it. There's been a significant cost to their witness of those churches and to people in the organization who have been hurt. It feels a little bit like, you know, I'm going to get the meanest, nastiest, most aggressive guard dog I can find and then uh, be surprised when it bites me. You stir up a certain character in people, and that's who they're going to be. 
I'll deal with points five and six that I made together as they both relate to how moralism affects the church and you can probably fill in some of the gaps already, but uh, Galatians 5.9, Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, meaning you can't add yeast to just part of the dough. Once there's yeast in there, it's now yeast dough. The tiniest granule of yeast can come to define the whole loaf, just as the tiniest tolerance of moralism will come to define the whole church. And once it's defined the whole church, it works to destroy the church. That's the point of verse 15. Paul says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. There is only one cause that ultimately unites us as a church, and that's the cause of Christ, the Great Commission. There's no leeway for anything to displace our core mission of making disciples. And again, we can talk about how that's fleshed out. The Great Commission itself says not just make disciples and baptize them, but teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded. Jesus does have commands about caring for those in need, and, and we can discuss how to do that. For some people, uh, raising awareness of needs through some kind of activism would be viewed as simply how we fill that uh, command. To one person, it's fleshing out the command to love their neighbor. For another, it's time and energy that would be rather spent on the gospel. Uh, one important defense of any kind of moralism is a healthy concept of Christian freedom. I can't stand here and tell you from Scripture, from Scripture, that you must take action on this or that cause or must not take action on this, that, or any cause. I can tell you that fits of anger and violence have no place in the kingdom of God. I can tell you that you do need to think through what it means to love your neighbor as yourself and as you become aware of the needs of your neighbors. I can tell you that the most pressing need for all of them is the need for a savior. I can tell you that even neighbors you don't like are made in the image of God and thus need to be valued and respected. I can certainly say don't get tangled up in anything that's contrary to the word of God. Beyond that, you have Christian freedom to work some things out on your own. So one person might say, I just can't see spending time on you know, saving the whales or whatever when people's souls are at stake. Response, great. Go, go and share the gospel. Go and save souls then. If you say, you know, God made whales. They show his glory. I kind of want to spend a few bucks to uh, give to somebody who's going to help keep them around. Sure, great, as long as you're doing this for God's glory, it's not replacing the gospel as your ultimate hope for the world, yeah, go for it. You know, I myself give like 10 bucks a year to the Arbor Day Foundation, in exchange for which I guess they spread the word across the nation about trees, the old commercial used to say. Somebody remembered it, I heard. heard. But, uh, you know, they also send me 10 free seedling trees each year, which live in my yard for a couple weeks before they die. This year I got smart. I actually ordered uh, red cedars, so when they die, I can just put them in my sock drawer, and that would be nice. They also send me enough paper junk mail to, like, fell half the world's rainforests, so somehow this helps the trees. So, you know, I <laughs> that's me engaging uh, in my Christian freedom. It means we can't bind consciences where Scripture does not, and the activist gospel doesn't get this, you know. You must care and take action about 
every worthy cause that's out there. I, I recently got an email from a Christian publisher promoting a new book, but it asked me this question. They asked me in this email, what are you doing to lift up the voices of Asian and Pacific Islander women in your community? Now, I can see how it's good to hear what people of different backgrounds have to say, but I just bristle at the way the question is phrased. What are you doing? The assumption is that you must be doing something, so what is it? There are so many things in the world that are worth caring about. You know, poverty, homelessness, predatory lending, abortion, and gun violence, and drugs, and war, and endangered species, and abuse, and domestic violence, and human trafficking, and corruption, and racism, sexism, mental health, suicide, the list goes on. I probably left something out that somebody will be mad about, and me not saying, but two things on this list, about that whole list. You know, even if you do feel inclined to engage out of love for neighbor, one person can't pay equal attention to all of that. And anyone who says that you must is preaching an activist gospel to you. you know, I also don't think you need to get into a, a uh, sort of moral calculus and argue about which one's the most important of, of, of those things. You, you, you have Christian freedom here. There's a thing that you care about that's close to you that you feel equipped to, to help or give with. You're free to do that. If you just don't have the resources for whatever someone is telling you to do or you need to take action on, you're free to let it go. Um, a second thing about that list is that Christians, and this is where it gets complicated, difficult, um, Christians of goodwill might want to address the same problem but disagree on how to go about it. Uh, to steal an illustration from Russell Moore, uh, one person might want to address poverty by saying we should raise the minimum wage. Another person might come along and say, well, no, I, I think raising the minimum wage will actually hurt the poor because they'll have their hours cut back, they'll have to work extra jobs. You can have those people have the same biblical motivation of wanting to see their poor neighbors doing better, but have different economic views on how that works out, how to best do that. And I'm not equipped to tell you which one is right, because in the words of uh, the um, great Dr. Uh, Leonard McCoy, or to paraphrase them, you know, darn it, Jim, I'm a pastor, not an economist. <laughs> so Christian freedom means that you will have Bible-believing Christians who are united in the same theological views, but opposite sides of certain political issues. Now, some issues are clear from Scripture. I'm not talking about abandoning the, the Bible's sexual ethics or anything like that. We'll actually talk about that next week. Um, but there are things the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us, like what minimum wage should be, or congressional term limits, or you know, the exact number of refugees to allow in from where, and how to vet them, how big the social safety net should be, and, and so forth. water there. So there will be times when we disagree with brothers and sisters in Christ. The extent to which we are troubled by that might show the extent to which an activist gospel has taken root in us. So as tensions rise and it feels like tumultuous times are ahead for our country, the only way the church can go forward is if Jesus is bigger to us than anything else. 
The cause of Christ is the cause that unites us, and it relativizes every other cause. It doesn't necessarily eliminate every other cause. You're free to care about other things, but as a church, what we come together for is the cause of Christ. And again, none of that means that we can't speak to what's going around, on around us. That doesn't mean we can't call evil evil. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm talking about one specific evil that plagues our culture and that we need to be on guard against as a church. Our culture teaches us to destroy people we disagree with. Our Savior taught us to put away the sword. He who lives by it will die by it. Put down the sword, take up your cross, follow Jesus. So the final points I had made about moralism were that it destroys fellowship with God and it removes the offense of the cross. Verse 4 You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. And then later in verse 11, in that case, Paul says, if, if Paul were preaching legalism, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. As I hope I've made clear by now, I do believe you can safely engage in healthy forms of activism for godly causes and not lose the gospel, even do those things because of the gospel, but there still is a real danger of losing sight of the gospel. As in every area of life, we need the humility to remember that our hearts are deceitful, and it's easy for us to fall into sin. It's especially easy for us to fall into sin when we are thinking, I'm doing something good and righteous, right? So we need to keep track of our motives. Are we trying to remove the offense of the cross by appealing to cultural idols, trying to avoid persecution by falling in line? That is a real pressure and a real danger to be aware of. The key to all of this is not for me to stand up here and tell you the one correct way of Christian social engagement, which causes you should be in favor of, what methods, if any, you should employ. The key to combating any kind of false gospel is instead to hold fast to the real one. God created mankind to care for the world that he'd made. We're commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. I I do believe that means it can be a good thing to try to make a difference. Uh, Deuteronomy 15.11 says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land, therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. Uh, Hold on to both of those ideas. It's not there will never cease to be poor people, so why bother? It's there will always be need, therefore always be ready to help, but don't delude yourself into thinking that you're going to eliminate the problem entirely. You won't. The root problem is that the world is broken because of Adam's sin. To borrow the title from a book, which I haven't actually read, the world is not ours to save. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God is reconciling all things to himself in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, by making peace through the blood of the cross. God is working through all things for our good as we, we and creation groan under the weight of futility. God is the one who will set the world free from its bondage to corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God is the one who will ultimately make all things new. This is the only gospel, the only action that will make the ultimate difference in the end and fix what needs to be fixed. This is the action 
Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonder of that truth that Christ has died for us, Christ has risen for us, and Christ will come again for us. We pray that this would be the beating heart of uh, each individual believer and of our fellowship together, uh, even as we continue to toil uh, in this broken world, uh, even should we disagree on um, the minutia, how to love our neighbors as ourselves, I, I pray that our beating heart and our unity as your body would be that we are all growing together into Christ, who is our head. I pray that uh, we would be united in that mission described in, in our name to put Christ first uh, and give us wisdom, give us discernment, give us peace as we seek to put Christ first uh, in our communities and in our engagement with the community. I, I pray that your spirit would be at work in us, that we would grow in bearing that fruit, which is ultimately the spirit who bears in us of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, even as we uh, stand boldly for the truth in the face of persecution, uh, even as we have grave concerns about uh, what's going on around us, um, even as we know um, that um, there are those who oppose the gospel and uh, who oppose us, um, nevertheless, May we bear the fruit of the Spirit. Um, may we uh, be prepared to uh, love our enemies, pray for those who, per who persecute us, um, so that uh, we would follow um, in the footsteps of our Savior and bring glory and honor to you, in whose name we pray. Amen.